This is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And before our program begins, I'm asking you to join your fellow listeners by sending us a donation now. It's easy to do at LOE.org. Or call me at 800-745-8810. Thanks, and now for the show. From Public Radio International, it's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Mozambique has lots of coal. A lot of coal. Well, they say it's the world's largest undeveloped coal basin. And it's got huge resources of coking and metallurgical coal. I think there's just a huge demand for coal now. With China and India, everybody that makes steel will be interested in it. The coal rush is on in Mozambique, but there's a price to be paid. And we leaf through a jumbo book. It's a double elephant folio, but it's strictly for the birds. One of the most popular Audubon plates is the wild turkey. In life size, it fills the entire leaf pretty much within about a half an inch or a quarter of an inch to the edge. Big birds in a big book and a lot more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is a recycled edition of Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. The red-hot economies of China and India have been cooling off in recent months, but their demand for coal is still voracious. The nations burn coal to provide two-thirds of their energy. And while both China and India are coal-rich, they're still looking overseas for new sources. The East African country of Mozambique is a prime place for multinational mining companies seeking to satisfy their demand. But as Rowan Moore Garrity reports, Mozambique's coal rush may extract a high price. On the banks of the Zambezi River, Manuel Mayenda cuts firewood near his home in Benga Village. It's hot, well over 100 degrees. Mayenda wears a worn nylon cowboy hat to escape the sun. I'm cutting this wood to help me get by. Mayanda drags the wood to his bicycle, propped against a tree in a speck of shade. He'll bring the wood home to cook or use it to produce charcoal, which he sells on the side of the road to Tet, the provincial capital. Mayanda points in the distance to large yellow dump trucks clearing rock. You see? People lived right there, all the way up to Nganje, over there. Some left at the end of last year. Others went this year. The land now belongs to Rio Tinto, a British-Australian mining company that's one of the world's largest. Rio Tinto will soon begin exporting coal from Mozambique, primarily to buyers in China and India. Tet is one of the driest regions in the country and one of its least populated. But the land in the Zambezi River Valley is prime real estate, largely because of access to water and coal. Well, they say it's the world's largest undeveloped coal basin. and It's got huge resources of coking and metallurgical coal. That's Herat Theron, a geologist with the Incandesi Coal Company. Incandesi is still in the prospecting phase, but mine construction in the region has already displaced some 2,000 families. Before the resettlements of other villages nearby, Rio Tinto representatives came to Benga to speak with the locals. They promised help, like building a water source right in the village. Manuel Mayenda says his community appreciated the gesture. We were having problems with crocodiles attacking people and so forth. And so they built it, and nobody goes to the river now or has problems with crocodiles. 
Now women wash their clothes in a shaded pavilion in the middle of the village, thanks to the same pipe that brings water to the mine. All around Benga, more dramatic changes are taking place. Construction is everywhere. Multiple hotels are going up. Four-by-fours are cruising through the bush. I asked Theron who's driving the boom. I think there's just a huge demand for coal now with China and India. Everybody that makes steel will be interested in it. Today, coal accounts for 20% of greenhouse gas emissions and more than a quarter of the world's energy use. Still, the planet as a whole will burn 50% more coal in 2030 than it does this year. Already, the price of coking coal has increased sixfold in a decade. Prices for thermal coal are also at record highs. But the flip side of increased demand is reduced supply. Many experts believe that peak coal, when the world's maximum coal production rate is reached, will come as early as 2030 or 2025. In China's case, it could be 2015 or even sooner, while China currently mines more coal than the next three largest producers combined. Theron says that this economic pressure has changed the bottom line for mining companies. And with the high prices that the guys are willing to pay now, you, you can exploit these resources which were uneconomical in the past. For instance, Tet, which was, didn't have any railways to the ports or infrastructure. The Brazilian mining giant Vale has already begun exports by rehabilitating a colonial railway to the coast. More will have to follow, and ports too. The existing line can only transport a fraction of the coal Vale hopes to produce. Meanwhile, 35 more companies are looking for coal throughout the province. Incandesi, for one, has drilled more than 10 miles of boreholes. Today, they've decided to drill one more. With the backhoe out of commission, local workers are preparing the site by hand. <laughs> These jobs are one reason that the district administrator, Manuel Guimarães, has high hopes for his district, Moatiz. Moatiz, de facto, está avançar. Already Moatiz is advancing, and it's advancing in big steps. Locally, Guimarães says that the coal projects have created 1,500 jobs for Moatiz residents and brought medical clinics and schools in addition to Benga's water source. Still, more than half the land in Tet province has been licensed for prospecting. Even if only a small number of projects become working mines, the implications for land use and resettlement are extensive. Rio Tinto is lobbying to dredge the Zambezi River and use it to transport coal. Guimarães and many people here treat the mining projects with an air of resignation. We all need to understand that mining in Moatiz is irreversible. We have to learn to deal with the process because we have no way to stop it. The world today needs the resources that Moatiz has. Local officials may have little choice but to take Guimarães's view. In 2012, coal from Moatiz will boost Mozambique's exports by 13%. With more than half the state budget dependent on foreign aid, Mining has become a top priority. Lucia Francisco has worked on community development projects in Tet for more than a decade. She worries that locals have lost out in the government's eagerness for investors. There is so little community consultation because all the licenses and all the projects are being designed in Maputo. The governor has no say. What he does is to go to the community, say, please, this is not my will, but this part of land has been already located to someone. We have to leave. 
All the same, says Francisco, the local people were understanding when they heard about resettlement. Some were even excited. From villages near the river, they were moved to Cateme, 20 miles away. The mining companies Valle and Rio Tinto built them concrete houses known here as casas melhoradas, or improved homes. But the houses were poorly built, and there were cracks throughout the walls. The area is isolated and arid. And they are really suffering because there are no rivers or streams that they can get water. No shops. Kateme is at the end of a bumpy dirt track on a dusty plateau. In the center of the settlement, vendors chat and sift corn at a small market. Farming was an important source of income for the communities that were resettled in Kateme. Yet none of this corn was grown here. Even the district administrator, Manuel Guimarães, recognizes that the lack of water has made agriculture hard. Right now, frankly, there are problems with pockets of hunger in the population there. There may soon be other reasons to worry. Studies in the U.S. have linked open-cast coal mining to higher rates of cancer, pulmonary diseases, and birth defects from air and water pollution. In Moatiz, many people and livestock drink straight from the rivers. According to Lucio Francisco, environmental effects of the mines have not gotten sufficient review. And nobody speaks about the pollution. Everybody says the mining is good because it's bringing money to the nation. But they don't even ask whether this open mining is going to damage their life. Rio Tinto recently published a report that estimates coal exports will earn Mozambique $15 billion over the next 25 years. But the government has not yet disclosed how mining revenue will be spent. The arrival of peak coal globally is expected to push coal prices even higher. Mining companies here will surely gain as a result. The locals are hoping they will, too. For Living on Earth, I'm Rowan Morgarity in Tet, Mozambique. And we have an update to our story. Mining giant Rio Tinto just exported its first shipment of coal from Mozambique. The coal is headed to a steel mill in India. Nairobi, Kenya, is a bustling business city, but it's also on the bleeding edge of climate change. Rainfall disruptions and drought have led to a mass migration from rural areas of the country to the city, and today 60% of the population of Nairobi live in slums. Hell on Earth is how Jocelyn Zuckerman describes these impoverished places. But writing in On Earth magazine, she says that the slums of Nairobi are also on the leading edge of urban agriculture and what is called vertical farming. For her article, The Constant Gardeners, Jocelyn Zuckerman traveled to the city's vast shantytown called Kibera. Most of the buildings are made of just sort of scraps of cardboard or mud, um, corrugated tin roofs on top of each other, really, with just little uh, dirt alleys running between them and laundry hanging all over, open sewage that you have to step over and around. But there's also lots of little stores and barbershops and butchers and bakeries. So there's there's a lot of industry happening there, a lot more than people realize, I think. And a lot of people, and a lot of people without food. Yeah, people are really hungry there. There was a study that was recently done, and I think it was something like 20% said that they had gone a day and a night without food in the last couple months. Poor people around the world especially in cities where they don't have access to land to grow their own food, generally spend from 75 to 80% of their incomes just on food. 
So this is an area that's that's already feeling the effects of climate change. It's sub-Sahara. There's uh, the desert is moving further south, and it's pushing people into cities. Mass exodus. Right. The desert is moving further south, and also the cycles of the weather are shifting. So the um, the dry periods are longer, and the rains are coming at times when they're not expecting them. They're also tending to be more extreme, a lot of rain. And when a lot of rain falls on the land that's been dry for so long, it can't absorb it. So they're just they're finding it much more difficult to farm in that part of the world. Something like 15 million people are moving to the cities every year. And you write that by 2050, two-thirds of the world's population will be living in cities. Right. That's according to the UN. And they're turning what little land they have into, well, farms. They are. They're doing some of it in um, what they call vertical gardens, which are just um, recycled grain sacks. It's about three feet tall and a diameter of probably a foot and a half. And they fill them up with some rocks to give it some structure and then dirt and poke some holes in the side and plant um, its kale. They call it Sukuma wiki there, which is uh, Swahili for to push through the week because it grows pretty quickly and you can buy it cheap. So it's pretty much the staple that Kenyans rely on. And so they're growing that and scallions and cabbage in these vertical gardens. At first I saw um, one or two in front of various shacks and then at one point I turned a corner and there were something like 35 of them um, and as I walked around the settlement, I just saw more and more of them. Where did they get the water for their sacks? Well, a lot of them are reusing wastewater. Um, there are some public taps, but I think something like 100 people share a single tap, and that's water for, you know, cooking, bathing. So in terms of gardening, they're often reusing wastewater, water that's been used for maybe washing dishes or washing laundry. It's that or nothing. These people are living in real desperation, um, and they're, they're finding ways around it. You know, in your article, you mentioned uh, prominently a farmer. His name is Francis Wachira. Have I pronounced that correctly? Yes, Francis Wachira. He's, he's quite a guy. He's a fantastic guy. He really is. Um, he struggled for a long time living in the city. He, he wanted to farm. He started trying to do it, and people made fun of him because there is a lot of um, stigma attached to what people do in cities and what people are meant to do in the countryside. And he stuck with it. And now he's got a pretty good-sized farm. He's growing all sorts of vegetables and fruits. How, how big is his plot? Yeah, it's about a quarter of an acre. It's amazing. In addition to all the fruits and vegetables, he's got 500 rabbits there. Um, he's got uh, wooden hutches, cages that he built himself three stories high, each of which can have two to five rabbits, I would say, in there. And he feeds them with um, kitchen scraps and grass from his farm. And then he composts everything to use the nutrients to put back into his farm. Well, we spoke with Francis Wachera. We called him up. Well, I want you to hear what he said to us. Actually, when I started this urban farming, it was like a miracle. I'm feeding my family, a family of five. Everybody here is growing some vegetables. So actually, the future of the world depends on urban farming. If you don't encourage people to grow food in the, in the urban area, we are going to have a shortage of food. Well, Francis Wachera, who we just heard from, uh, actually traveled to the United States, and he had uh, things to teach Americans about farming. Absolutely. He was a really inspirational figure. He was in the States for six weeks in Denver talking with farmers. And at one point he said he, he gave this speech and he was talking about his rabbits, his 500 rabbits that he's raising in downtown Nairobi. And at the end of the speech, the whole crowd was on their feet call, shouting, Rabbit King, Rabbit King. <laughs> and um, he understood that he really had something to teach these people. 
So, Jocelyn, is urban agriculture the the face of farming in the future? I think it absolutely is. I mean, I I don't think we're going to have a choice, especially with the the populations moving to the cities the way they are, and also our land being degraded. The soils in Africa in particular are so tired, they're just not growing crops well. So people are needing to figure out ways to, you know, other ways to do it. And these these low-tech methods that they're using in Africa were really impressive, and they're sustainable. Jocelyn, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Jocelyn Zuckerman's article, The Constant Gardeners, appeared in On Earth magazine. It's published by the Natural Resources Defense Council. Just ahead, Nuevo Fusion Cuisine, cooking with solar. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's a recycled edition of Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Kellerman. Environmentalists have a new weapon in their war on deforestation, poaching of endangered species, and the destruction of animal habitats. Drones, fleets of small self-flying airplanes, could soon become a part of the eco-arsenal. A tropical forest clearing in Sumatra serves as a runway, as Leon Pin Co. test flies his conservation drone. Quickly airborne, the drone's cameras capture a bird's-eye view of the dense forest below. But Leon Pin Co. found that some of the test flight landings were rougher than expected. When he's not in Sumatra testing his eco-surveillance plane, Professor Leon Pin Co. teaches ecology and conservation at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich. He's co-developer of the Conservation Drone 1.0 and says the idea of using small self-flying airplanes is really taking off. So it's basically just a hobby remote control model plane that uh, you can buy from any hobby shop. It has a wingspan of about 1.4 meters. So it's pretty small and it's very compact. We can basically put it in a backpack and carry it around in the forest. How far does it go and how high does it go? It can fly for about 20 to 25 minutes, which gives it a range of about 10 to 15 kilometers. And it can be programmed to fly up to maybe about 300 meters above ground. About 1,000 feet. Right. But the, the cool thing about the system is we incorporated an autopilot system into this uh, model airplane, which essentially makes it into a drone. So this plane flies itself? Correct. It flies itself autonomously. So it's the autonomous nature of the plane that you have this software that allows it to fly itself. That's the innovation that you bring to this. Well, yes, but I should say that the autopilot hardware and software have been developed by a group of online developers and hobbyists. So it is open source uh, software. So what we did was to take this system and apply it to our research area, which is uh, tropical conservation. By strapping a camera on the belly of the plane, you can uh, easily see the plumes of smoke in the horizon. And those could be illegal burning activities that uh, many of the local uh, rangers and forest managers uh, want to be able to control and to keep track of. The other would be taking uh, area photos to produce real-time land cover maps. What about uh, tracking wild animals? Yeah, that's the third uh, main purpose of this drone, to be able to uh, 
count the number of cheetahs or antelopes or elephants, which would be already a huge cost of savings because what's currently being done is that ecologists go on manned aircrafts to try to do those kind of surveys, and that could be very, very expensive. So I should also add that when we began using drones for conservation, we actually decided to first buy a commercial system that cost tens of thousands of dollars. We found that it doesn't really do everything we wanted it to do. And besides, it cost a huge amount of money, which many local conservation workers in the tropics would not be able to afford. So how much did your system cost? So our system costs uh, less than $2,000, wow. uh, including the cameras and, and the electronics and the plane and the software. Well, the software is open source, of course. So when you're about to fly this drone, what do you do? You program it? How do you make it go where you want it to go? That's very simple. We, we just uh, basically have to click on uh, waypoints on a Google map. We just upload it to the drone and flick a switch on the radio system and it takes off on its own and goes about its mission. And after it's done with the mission, it flies back to us. Professor Ko, why not uh, use satellites for imaging the rainforest? Yeah, we have been uh, using satellites as well, but a couple of problems. One is the cost. And the second reason is uh, because in many parts of the humid tropics, there is a persistent cloud cover. So it's very difficult to get real-time images from a particular location using satellite-based remote sensing. You know, Professor Ko, have you thought of this, that you're flying this drone over a forest and you hone in on a deforester, someone who's cutting down trees, and they start shooting at the drone and maybe shooting at you? Actually, being shot at was one of the motivations for developing the drone, too. Being shot at is a big risk of having manned aircrafts flying over forests uh, looking for illegal loggers or poachers. So if the drone gets shot at, it's the drone that goes down, and it's only a $2,000 technology. It's practically disposable compared to a manned aircraft or an ultralight. Since you've uh, had successful test flights, have environmental groups come to you saying, hey, we could use that? Yeah, we've got lots of people contacting us, got colleagues from other research institutes asking us to go to Borneo to fly over the rainforest, asking us to uh, go to uh, Africa. And we've even got uh, someone asking uh, us to bring our drones to the Antarctica to film uh, penguins. Professor Ko, were you the kind of kid, I know I was, who flew model airplanes, all that? Uh, no, no, I wanted to fly, but we just couldn't afford to buy one of those things in my family. So I'm sort of uh, living my childhood dream now. You know, one of my dreams is to be able to develop something that is of uh, real uh, practical use to conservation in the tropics, apart from all the academic uh, work that I'm engaged in, to reach out to the people on the ground who are actually doing conservation. Is it fun to fly? Oh, it's very fun. Uh, that's just uh, the other reason why we developed the drone. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations, Professor Ko. You've earned your wings. Oh, thank you very much. Leon Pinko is a professor of ecology and conservation at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich. miles off the southeast coast of Africa is Madagascar. It's the fourth largest island in the world, 
smaller than Texas, but bigger than California. 70% of the plants on Madagascar and 80% of the animals are found no place else on Earth. It's biologically rich because it's remote and has a wide diversity of forest habitats. But the island nation is economically impoverished, and the forest resources are rapidly being removed. In just 20 years, Malagasy forests equal to the size of Connecticut have been cut down. Musician Raiza Saeed is from Madagascar. She recorded a CD about the destruction of forests in our homeland. It's called Zebu Nation. The Zebu is um, a cattle that is very common in Madagascar and means a lot of things for Malagasy people. The Zebu represents the connection between the world of the living and the world of the dead. We eat the zebu as well. It's uh, the daily meat of Madagascar. So it, uh, it has a lot of different layers of meanings. Well, your album is, is basically an impassioned um, plea for preserving the forest of Madagascar. I realized that there was not much that was known about that. I decided to do something about it. So I decided to write about this uh, environmental, you know, disaster we're going through in Madagascar. One day in May It was a beautiful day I felt so alone When the sky opened up and changed to charcoal gray One thing that is going on is slash-and-burn agriculture. You know, people are burning the forest in order to fertilize the soil. But at the end, after three crops, the soil is totally uh, impoverished from its uh, nutrients. At the end, it becomes just some soil that is eroded. It's a huge, huge problem in Madagascar because this is something that people have been doing for generations. Slash and burn. Slash and burn. There's also the big problem of poverty. We are, um, you know, one of the poorest countries in the world. So it's very difficult to make people understand something when they have to figure a way to live on a daily basis and how they're going to feed their children the next day. On the mountainside, still the children play. Things feel the same way, but something is gone, it's all gone up some of your, your trees are worth huge amounts of money. You've got uh, ebony and rosewood. These are very exotic and very expensive trees. Yes, very expensive once it comes out of Madagascar, but actually people are getting it for pretty cheap from Madagascar. So this is, this is the other layer of the big problem in Madagascar, which is illegal logging. They've cut everything that was outside of national parks, and uh, they're going into national parks. You know, can you imagine if people go to Yellowstone and get in the park and just started cutting trees? People would be totally like outraged here in the States, I'm sure. And in Madagascar, I'm trying to, you know, make people realize that these trees are worth much more than whatever they're getting. But again, you know, you're facing the same problem, which is they think about what's happening today and tomorrow, but they're not thinking about much more than that. Is that the reason you wrote the, and sang the song on your album, the, the Mifo Haza? Did I pronounce that correctly? Yeah, Mifoza, Mifoza, which means wake up.
is what this song is about. You know, let's stop cutting the wood because this wood, actually, this forest could bring so much more to Madagascar because Madagascar is known for its biodiversity and for its, you know, for its beautiful endemic species. And if we cut these trees, we'll, we'll have no more animals living in them. We'll have no more trees. We'll just become a desert. All of your songs have been translated in English in the liner notes, and uh, it says, don't let anyone pretend to have the right to use them to fulfill their own greed. Yes, absolutely. Who are you talking about? Specifically now, this case of uh, Gibson, you know, about the illegal wood, and uh, but it's not just Gibson, it's... Uh, Gibson guitar. We, there's, uh, yes, Gibson guitar. We have a lot of wood that's been uh, exported to China, and the people in Madagascar are not seeing really much money from this wood. They're getting paid $2.50 a day to, to go get some wood in the middle of national parks that they're dragging, you know, through miles and miles uh, to get them to some port where they leave Madagascar illegally. It's horrible. We should say, though, that Gibson Qatar Company has said they deny the allegations that they have anything to do with the illegal logging. We have a video of a concert of, of some Malagasy musicians who held a, a, a concert there in, in support of the rainforest. Yes, this is what I did in uh, October. I organized this concert. It was next to the National Park of Maswala. People have been going into that park and cutting some trees. The concert attracted about 10,000 people. It felt like... It was not right to cut that forest. They showed us some wells and started saying, can you believe there was no more water in the wells? There were cobwebs. We're trying to explain to them, you know, when you don't have any more forest, this is what happened. It just dries up. This is a region where I come from that is on the northeast of Madagascar. When I grew up, I used to walk along that park because my grandfather was doing some agriculture, some coffee, some cloves in that area. So it's something that is really, really close to me. And um, when I went there, no, I'm getting emotional talking about all of this. Um, when I went there a year ago, and I started speaking to people, introducing myself, and they remembered my grandfather because, you know, he's gone since. And they said, oh, my God, you're the granddaughter of, uh, of this person. And they said, please do something to help us. Do something to help us. I wanted to ask you about your um, song, Nai ala tsika. Do I have that correct? Nialantika. Nialantika. What does that mean? It's nature's lament. You know, what's happening to our nature. And if we're not careful, you know, we're not going to have anything left for future generations. Nature is uh, begging for help. Can you sing it there? I know that we're not set up to do this, but I just want to hear you sing it. <laughs> well, I don't have any instrument around here, but uh, okay. La ka la ka ni fiyananga etambu ni tani ni tuntulu ye fatiyananga kama kama pitumani I think that there is something to be done and we need to do it fast. 
you know, Malagasy people cannot do it on their own, and I will not say it enough. We really need your help. Boy, Razia, thank you so very much. Thank you. Razia Saeed's CD is Zebu Nation. Some of the profits from sales go to reforesting Madagascar. Our website has more information, loe.org. As former President Harry Truman once said, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. Well, with the dog days of summer upon us, that's just what commentator Pat Priest of Athens, Georgia does. When you say, it's like an oven out there, when one baking hot day follows another, try baking outside using the free radiant heat of the sun. I'm cooking some beets this afternoon in my side yard in a solar cooker as I write this. I occasionally have to adjust the cooker slightly to orient it more squarely towards the sun. But other than that, it's simple. Working like a crock pot, you can leave all day while you're at work. No plug needed, no danger of fire. The only problem I've ever had is that someone ran over mine in the driveway once, causing an explosion of glass and garbanzos. Most sun ovens are shaped like the Elizabethan collar you put on your dog so it won't lick and scratch its wound. The shiny collar funnels the sun inward. The oven I use costs a little over a hundred bucks. It's a black enamel bowl that sits inside a rounded glass bottom and top, creating a greenhouse effect. I set the pot inside that reflective collar that cantilevers outward to surround the meal I'm cooking. It's dazzling. Really, gotta wear shades. With my solar stove, I can cook without using electricity, which I avoid because of the CO2 emissions and the mountaintop removal associated with coal-fired power plants. And when I'm cooking outdoors, I don't have to use more energy still to cool my kitchen on these stifling hot days. I love to be outdoors working in my garden and catch a whiff of my dinner cooking. And the neat part about the company that makes my solar cooker is that a portion of its sales helps send these simple devices to developing countries. Fuel is expensive, and cooking with wood or dung is harmful to people's health. Solar cooking limits the deforestation that happens when poor people cut trees for wood stoves. So there and here, solar ovens make sense. Sun-powered and very cool. Pat Priest produces a radio program called True South in Athens, Georgia. For more information on solar stoves, go to our website, LOE.org. Coming up, Darwin evolves a hip-hop version of the origin of species. Keep up the beat at Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. You're listening to a recycled edition of Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. John James Audubon's book, Birds of America, had a transforming effect on the study of natural history in the United States. The life-size images of the birds are colorful, artistic, and beautifully detailed. 175 copies were originally printed, but today just 120 of them have survived intact. Naturalist Laurie Sanders found one of the big bird books at Amherst College in Massachusetts. 
Every Monday morning, in the lobby of the Special Collections Department in Amherst College's main library, Marion Walker undoes one lock, then another. She removes the back plate of glass from the display case that she and others in archives call the birdcage. With a gentle pull, she slides out a large tray. This is one of the volumes of the Birds of North America by Audubon. It was given by the Pratt family, and we keep one volume out for a certain amount of time, and once a week we turn a page. The book measures nearly two feet by three feet and is one of the largest books ever printed. Walker leans way over, gently but firmly grips the page in two places, and slowly flips it over. Paper's rather, not, not completely fragile, but we do want to be careful with it. And there we have the prairie starling. Today we know this specimen by a different common name, red-winged blackbird. On this plate, Audubon has painted the male and female perched on a shrub, the male with his wings arched to show off his red shoulder patches, the female watching him. The image is one of 435 different birds that Audubon painted for Birds of America. Each bird is shown in life size, so relative to the size of the paper, these red-winged blackbirds look small. We do have people who show up once a week to see which bird is on display that week, so we have our regulars. But anyone can come here and ask to see all of the Audubon books. The other volumes are stored in a locked vault. They're so heavy and awkward that archivist Peter Nelson says it takes two people to move them onto a cart and roll them down to the reference room to look at. Most of the Audubon Birds of America are just the plates and no letterpress printing. But our copy is the only known copy to have the list of subscribers' names after the title page. And here we see the subscribers' names, about 130 or so of them. At the very top, His Most Gracious Majesty George IV, King of England. Audubon came to the United States from France in the early 1800s as a young man sent by his father to avoid being drafted into the Napoleonic Wars. He was a self-taught artist and naturalist. Once here, his first job was to oversee a lead mine on some family property near Philadelphia. But Audubon wasn't very interested in doing that, and he wasn't very good at it either. In fact, all of his attempts at later businesses failed too. The main reason is because he was much more interested in being outdoors, exploring, observing, and painting wildlife, especially birds. In 1819, he decided to devote himself entirely to painting and describing all the birds of America. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. Okay, this is the the biggie. Plate one. One of the most popular Audubon plates is the wild turkey. In life size, it fills the entire leaf pretty much within about a half an inch or a quarter of an inch to the edge. Audubon painted his birds as naturalistically as possible. This was a very big departure from previous naturalists' uh, illustrations of birds and animals. The worst thing that could happen to a bird was to see Audubon come towards it with a shotgun, basically. John Burke is an Audubon scholar and professor of botany at Smith College. He would obviously kill them or buy them dead. Very few birds were drawn alive. He worked at this, and actually he devised a way that he could prop the bird up in a lifelike position. But essentially he would wire them up in poses and then paint them, and he had a grid so that he could transfer the body onto the paper life-size. Although the poses Audubon used were sometimes criticized as overly theatrical or even inaccurate, Burke says Audubon's Birds of America was hugely important. First, the illustrations made every bird 
widely available. Secondly, there was a text, and it is not as well read as it should be. It has sort of a rambling tone to it, and people have objected to various aspects of it. But he described every bird that he knew and gave a great deal of information that certainly is good today. In the process of preparing Birds of America, Audubon discovered new species of birds. He painted several that are now extinct, Carolina parakeet, passenger pigeon, the great auk, heath hen. He was an avid hunter, but he also recognized that certain species were declining because of overhunting and habitat changes. Burke says, as a person, Audubon was driven, adventurous, lively, and outspoken. He was a storyteller who sometimes didn't let the truth get in the way of telling a good story. You could look at the birds of America with pleasure again and again. I mean, just leafing through. I'm surprised looking at them, how appealing they are and the drama that's inherent in many of the pictures. Unlike modern field guides, where the birds are grouped together according to their similarities, Audubon organized Birds of America with a repeating pattern, a big bird, then a medium-sized bird, then three smaller ones. Given its layout, Marion Walker never knows week to week which species to expect. She says she could look it up in the index, but the surprise is part of the delight of her Monday morning ritual. Still, she doesn't resist when I ask her to look ahead. (gasps) Oh my goodness, it's the pelican. It's the brown pelican. For Living on Earth, I'm Laurie Sanders. Rhymes and evolutionary biology are what you'll hear on the Music Project, a rap guide to evolution. The weak and the strong, in the lab with a pen and a pad is Baba Brinkman, a Canadian rapper with a master's degree in English and a passion for Charles Darwin. Baba, welcome to Living on Earth. Thanks a lot, Bruce. Thanks for having me on. So, where did the idea for the rap guide to evolution come from? I came from a scientist. I I don't take credit for it. It was a commission. Uh, The thing that I was doing at the time was another show called the uh, Rap Canterbury Tales. And uh, it was, you know, Jeffrey Chaucer remixed his hip hop. And a scientist heard that show, saw that show. Uh, His name is Mark Palin. He's in Birmingham, UK, studies bacterial genetics. And he said, you know, if you could do the Canterbury Tales, could you do the Origin of Species next? And he uh, had, a, had a budget from the British Council to create an event for Darwin's birthday. And the Rap Guide to Evolution was the entertainment. We're going to listen to a selection from uh, your album. It's called Natural Selection, naturally. All right. Whoever is led to believe that species are mutable will do, will do, will do good service by conscientiously expressing his conviction. <coughs> For only thus can the load of prejudice by, by, by which this subject is overwhelmed be, re- be removed. Be removed. That's Richard Dawkins reading The Origin of Species, reading Darwin's words. It's basically, if you believe in evolution, you need to tell people that you believe in evolution because that's what's going to make all of the prejudice or the misunderstandings or the tension around it disappear. So what you know about natural selection? Go ahead and ask a question and see where the answer gets you. Try being passive-aggressive or try smashing heads in and see which tactic brings your plans to fruition. And if you have an explanation of mind, then you're wasting your time because the best watchmaker is blind. It takes a certain base kind of impatient mind to explain away nature with intelligent design. It's time to elevate your mind state and celebrate your kinship with the primates. The way of the strong, we gotta go and on. 
Baba, I understand that um, this uh, may be the first scientifically peer-reviewed hip-hop album in history. Uh, that's That does seem to be the case, yeah, which is... You know, wasn't really my original intention with it, but uh, it basically came from the scientist, Mark Palin, and he said, look, you know, if you're going to rap about evolution, you need to make sure you represent evolution accurately and don't misconstrue what it actually means and how it works. So I'm going to ask you to send me drafts of your rap lyrics so I can check them for accuracy. So I had all my raps fact-checked before the performance. So how has it uh, fared on stage? Have you found success? Yeah, well, it started at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival in Scotland, and uh, it won an award there, and then a, a Broadway producer saw it, and she optioned the rights to it, and we started in June, and uh, we had over 10,000 people come see it in New York, and now it's going to be touring to college campuses and performing arts centers around the country, and, and my hope is to take it to places that are slightly less culturally friendly towards evolution. If you can make people laugh at evolution and tap their feet along with it, it just makes it less scary. We'll have to see how your music evolves. Yeah, well, it's, uh, I, it's, uh, it's the process is called performance feedback revision. You put it on stage, you try it for people, you get their impressions, you talk to them, you get the feedback, and then you, you fine-tune based on what they say. And sometimes people ask me, well, how does your show get written? Like this, performance feedback revision. And how do I generally develop my lyricism? Like this, performance feedback revision. And how do human beings ever learn to do anything? Like this, performance feedback revision. And evolution is really just kind of an algorithm that goes like this, performance feedback revision. So the genetic I mean, I noticed similarities between things that rappers were saying and things that were biologists were saying and, and ways in which hip-hop was a sort of showcase of the kinds of behaviors that evolution has been applied to cooperation, aggression, uh, mating dances, costly signaling displays. In, in evolutionary terms, is there a role for bling in the rap world? Absolutely, yeah. The one, bling features quite largely in the, in the off-Broadway show. Uh, the Peacock's Tale is the classic example. Because if you have some kind of a flaw in your genes or you're, you know, not strong, then it's impossible to grow that large of a tail and carry it around and not get killed by a predator. So the tail is a, a handicap that's an advertisement of its own cost. And I think that's what bling is as well. If you can afford to carry bling around, then uh, it means you're, you're winning the game. <laughs> it's your, you know, fashion sense or your Harvard degree that you're showing off that hangs on the wall or the fact that you you know, raised a couple of kids that are whip smart or winning at something or, you know, there's lots of things that we display to each other to try to advertise something about ourselves. And bling just happens to be the sort of symbolism that hip hop is settled on. But anything could suffice as long as it's difficult to fake and costly and represents your resources. You know, I, I don't think I'll ever listen to rap or look at a peacock again the same way. Well, that really is my goal, as well as teaching people about evolution. I want people to appreciate rap, you know, not just as some kind of like aggressive chest beating display. A lot of people take it for negativity and materialism and misogyny and all that. But, you know, it comes from a specific cultural context. And it's not it's not just about the material bling. It's about the verbal bling, you know, the skill with words and storytelling craft. And, uh, you know, it's a it's a sort of virtuoso display of linguistic ability, which is also very difficult to fake. Anybody who, who doesn't get it is either missing something, very similar to evolution, actually. Both rap and evolution are massively hated on, and I'm trying to redeem them. Tell me about the, the cut, I'm African. It's not I'm an African. You've got a master's degree in English. Shouldn't it be I'm an African? 
Well, that's me being respectful of the social context of the original track that that remixes. So I'm African is actually a track by Dead Prez, which is a, a, a rap group originally from Florida. Their version is based on Peter Tosh said, you know, as long as you're a black man, then you're African. It's like a reggae song that Peter Tosh made, you know, sort of basing it on Garvey. And I'm just making the point that actually that's true for all black people if you go back 500 years, but it's true for all living humans if you go back 500 centuries. Between 50 and 70,000 years ago is when the first modern humans left Africa and all of the races are descended from those first Emigrants, and then that's not actually that much time. That's that makes racial differences superficial. I wasn't born in Ghana, but Africa is my mama, cause that's where my mama got her mitochondria. You can try to fight if you want it, but it's not gonna change me, cause it's plain to see. Africans are my people, and if it's not plain to see, then your eyes deceive you. I'm talking primeval. The DNA in my veins tells a story that reasonable people find believable, but it might even blow your transistors. Africa is the home of our most recent common ancestors, which means human beings are all brothers and sisters. I feel like the whole human race can shout in, in unison. I'm an African, I'm an African, yeah, and I know what's happening. And by the way, the grammatical thing, it's all about the rhythm, right? I'm an African, I'm an African. But if you say, I'm an African and say it grammatically properly, it becomes, I'm a Nafrican. And the word naf just sounds wrong in there. In this case, you got to drop that N and turn it into a sort of rhythmic, I'm an African, make all the syllables pop. You can't change me because I'm going to be a homo sapien for life. So what's next? Uh, a rap guide to string theory? A rap guide to the Higgs boson? Well, I, I got a couple of projects I, I have a half an eye on, but I don't really have anything that's uh, that's 100% confirmed. I'll tell you, one thing I'm interested in doing a rap about is, is uh, climate change, global warming, environmental sustainability. I think that's another subject that there's a scientific consensus on. Scientists all agree that, yes, the world is getting warmer, and yes, it's human-caused to a large degree. There's not complete agreement on what the political response to that ought to be. That's one thing I'd be interested in doing a rap on. Although I haven't been able to figure out how to really like make that entertaining enough yet. So still taking notes. Oh, Baba, I love it. Cool. That's why I make it. <laughs> Baba Brinkman is the man behind the Rap Guide to Evolution. You can find a link to his songs and his brand new music videos at LOE.org. Well, Baba, thank you so very much. Thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it. I'm an African. I'm an African. Yeah. And I know what's happening. I'm an African. I'm an African. Archaeologists know what's happening. Are you an African? You an African? Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Lise Kern, Ike Shreeskandaraja, and Jeff Young. With help from Gabriella Romano and Sammy Susan. Our interns are Annabelle Ford, Christy Pereira, and Annie Sneed. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lurish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and check out our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. I'm Bruce Kellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield invites you to Just Eat Organic for a day. Details at JustEatOrganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund, and Pax World Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld, for tomorrow. PRI. 
Public Radio International.